Hey everybody, Curtis here. Sorry we are getting this sermon out a little late this week, but this is the sermon that I preached this past Sunday. For those of you who weren't with us, we sang Christmas songs this week. It's our one time a year where we have some singing time during our worship service, at least for now. Although I do have to say that I did miss hearing all the voices. Well, most of the voices. Now that we're Zooming this December instead of singing in person. One song we were not singing this week, despite our topic this Sunday from Matthew 2, was We Three Kings. There are some Christmas stories that just get so very familiar that we, we start to miss what they're all about in the first place. And that's all the more a problem when the familiar stories have been layered on with so many traditions and inventions that we get a little confused what is actually a part of the story and what isn't. So sometimes it's helpful to take a fresh look at the stories and see if there might be something different there than we had thought. The story of the three wise kings who bring gifts to baby Jesus is very much one of those stories because, well, despite what the song and most nativity sets might indicate, we don't know how many there were. Almost certainly not three. They were certainly not kings, and from the story, it's unlikely that Jesus was still a baby when they arrived. This is the story that Matthew tells in chapter 2. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem asking, Where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened, and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet, And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word so that I may also go and pay him homage. When they had heard the king, they set out, and there ahead of them went the star that they had seen at its rising, until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then opening their treasure chests, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And, having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. So, let's take a quick look at our cast of characters here. First, what we have are not kings, but astrologers, probably Persian. They often served kings as part of the royal court, but they weren't kings themselves. Instead, they were kind of quasi-priestly figures, almost scientists even in a way, who looked to the stars for omens of what was happening on Earth. This actually makes a bit more sense than you might think in their worldview, but we'll get more into that on the backdrop. For now, it's enough to say that they would have expected that great events, including the rise and fall of kings and emperors, would be foretold in the stars because the world is all connected. And we can only speculate about what might have been the astronomical phenomenon that they saw that told them that the king of the Jews had been born. According to the scholar N.T. Wright, One possible explanation is that the planets Jupiter and Saturn were in conjunction with each other, much like they are right now, actually. And that happened three times in the year 7 BC, which is right around the time Jesus would have been born. And in the ancient world, Jupiter was associated with, among other things, kings and rulers. And Saturn was associated sometimes with the Jewish people. So there you go. King of the Jews, Jupiter, Saturn. Our other main character is King Herod. 
the one who actually holds the title King of the Jews. <laughs> Herod was given this title as a result of his political skill in currying favor with the Romans and his ability, and this was not unimportant, to keep the notoriously unruly citizens of Judea in line, to keep them from creating any trouble for Rome. He was getting to the end of his life at this point. He died in 4 BC. And as is often the case when powerful people feel vulnerable, he had gotten increasingly paranoid as he got older, to the point of having his own sons executed. It is in no way surprising that the story continues with the slaughter of innocent boys, which we'll come back to next week. You can see why all the people of Jerusalem were frightened along with them when news of a new king having been born arrives. This was not going to put Herod in a good mood. And if Herod is not in a good mood, then the people... Well, it's not going to go well for them. What Matthew is doing in this passage is setting up a contrast. The pagans who see, at least in part, and the Jewish rulers who don't. In one sense, this is surprising. He's asking his mostly Jewish readers to identify with pagan astrologers, an art that is expressly forbidden in the Old Testament. And he is showing them leaders of God's people who turn into villains. Herod basically switches places with the pagans. He ends the story, like I said, with child sacrifice, a practice that was notoriously and distinctly pagan in the eyes of the Jewish people. Only pagans would do such a horrible thing, but that's what Herod does to protect his power. The Jewish king acting like a pagan, the pagan astrologers seeing the true king of the Jews. Surprising. But on the other hand, if you've read your Old Testament, or if you were with us as we went through Jeremiah, this is pretty much par for the course. Jeremiah and the other prophets have particular scorn for the religious and political leaders of the people, the ones who don't see, who don't understand what God is doing. God's people, and especially those in power over God's people, have a terrible track record on this point, one that goes back millennia, really. This is how the story of God's people goes, over and over again. And so perhaps this contrast, the pagans who see and the Jewish leaders who don't, is entirely expected, even if it still isn't how it should be. This is a perpetual problem for God's people, again, one we shouldn't think ended with Jesus's arrival on the scene. We've seen the very same dynamic in the church, where we build up an institution that is supposed to be about the kingdom of God, is legitimately about the kingdom of God in some ways, but which is in fact blind to some of the most important things that God is actually doing. And the more power the leaders of God's people have, it seems, the more they fall into this trap, over and over, time and time again. So what are we to do with this? How are we to not fall into the trap, to see what God is doing and recognize it for what it is instead of rejecting it? One obvious solution, though not an easy one to actually put into practice, is to listen to the Spirit of God. In humility, recognizing that as much as we might think we've got it all figured out, God has this annoying habit of surprising God's people with how things actually play out. This is why we have a value of openness as a church here at Pomona Valley, because we cannot just assume that we are listening and hearing, looking and seeing. The process of trusting God more and more and aligning ourselves with what God is doing in the world, it's a lifelong process. But this openness is not a purely individual pursuit, actually. There are certainly spiritual practices that we do as individuals that are crucial aspects of openness. But God also speaks through other people sometimes. And our openness practices need to include communal and relational aspects as well. 
We need to listen to what God is saying and doing through one another in this church. We also need to listen to the marginalized because they sometimes see what God is doing in ways that the powerful simply do not. Just as a personal example, I remember my first encounters with what is called liberation theology, which is a movement, especially among Latin American and black theologians that explore the consistent theme in scripture that God is in some special way present with and on the side of the oppressed over against the powerful, that God is fundamentally a liberating God. And I kind of waved it away as a college and seminary student. I think I was distracted by the liberation theologians that went a little overboard. I mean, isn't God on the side of everyone? Don't all lives matter to God? But I've come to see my younger self as a little unnuanced, shall we say. Blind, maybe, is a better word. Blind to the ways that liberation theology is an essential correction to the biblical interpretation that is and always has been done by the powerful. Historically oppressed people see things in scripture that I just don't, unless I listen to what God is saying through them and allow myself, my understanding, to be corrected and aligned a little more to the fullness of who God is instead of just the narrow perspective that I have myself. So we listen to God as individuals. We listen to God through one another in our church. We listen to what God is saying and doing in and through our brothers and sisters who are oppressed and marginalized. But this story, the story of the wise men who saw Jesus's star in their pagan perusal of the heavens, it challenges us even further than that. Even further than listening to the oppressed among God's people who might have insight that we lack. Because this story challenges us to listen to the pagans. And I use that word intentionally here. Because they might see. Because God might have revealed the truth to them in ways that God hasn't to us. Is it because we wouldn't listen? Or does God just know that certain truths are better heard by some ears than others? Sometimes God uses the pagans to help us see more clearly what God is up to, if we let them. I've heard Christians who refuse to listen to the Black Lives Matter movement because of the Marxist leanings of some of their leaders and founders and some of their literature. But if God can reveal the truth to pagan astrologers, I don't think Marxists are too far gone for him. And let's be clear here. There are aspects of Marxism that are explicitly anti-God. Absolutely. But again, astrology is expressly forbidden in the Old Testament. And yet here the Magi are, seeing the truth, at least a part of it and sharing it with God's people who refuse to listen. There are those who are skeptical of science because of the atheism of many scientists. Neil deGrasse Tyson doesn't have to be able to fully affirm the Trinity to be able to teach me important things about the world the Trinity created. In rejecting the insights, the truth that God has revealed through these and so many other pagan sources, what we are doing is putting ourselves on the side of King Herod. Aligning ourselves with the people of Jerusalem who are trembling in fright at this new thing God is doing. Matthew, in the story of the wise men from the East, challenges us to be open to what God is doing. Open to the truth about the world and God's people, no matter where that truth might come from. No matter who God's word might be revealed through. Let's be people who are characterized by openness, even when that means hearing what God is saying to the pagans.